Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to today's show, I want to let you know that we're offering our podcast listeners a special 20% lifetime discount to the China Africa Daily Brief. Now that's the newsletter that Cobus and I produce every day that provides the most comprehensive digest of everything China's doing on the continent and now increasingly throughout the global south. In addition to the newsletter, you'll also get full archive access to the website and the China Africa Experts Network as well. To get that discount, just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe and use the promo code podcast at checkout. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, there has been a lot of news this week on the infrastructure front, some really big news, in fact. Uh, we got word just this week that Uganda has signed a deal with the China Road and Bridge Corporation for a 50 billion shilling, about $46 million, to revamp their meter gauge railway that will go from Kampala all the way into the Kenyan Rift Valley city of Naivasha. And there it will connect to Kenya Standard Gauge Railway all the way to the port of Mombasa. Now, this is very important because this was always the dream, was to build a regional rail network. Now, back in the day, they wanted to do that with a standard gauge railway. Now they're going to band-aid together the meter gauge and the standard gauge, but at least something's happening. So a lot of excitement about that. Also this week, uh, Kenyan President Uru Kenyatta, after he comes back from the Paris Finance Summit that he attended with a number of African leaders this week, he will be heading down to the port of Lamu, where the first of 32 new berths is going to be ready this week. That's being built by Chinese contractors as well. They're going to be able to take these new Panamax, which are the mid-sized containers, into the port of Lamu. That will then complement what they're doing in the port of Mombasa. Also, earlier this year, we did some news that Chinese contractors will be building the new $1.3 billion section of Tanzania's standard gauge railway. And then, of course, as we've talked about a number of times on this program, the Nairobi Expressway that's also being built by the China Road and Bridge Corporation. That's going to be done before the end of the year sometime. So lots of exciting developments in East Africa in the construction front and on the infrastructure side of that. All of this is being done by Chinese contractors, and it represents the trend that we're seeing last year that 31% of the 121 infrastructure projects being built across the continent were being done by Chinese contractors. However, however, very important point here, they're not being financed by the Chinese. These are Chinese contractors who are doing the bids and doing the work on it, but they're not paying for it. Now, this goes to the key point here that the African Development Bank estimates that the continent's annual infrastructure financing deficit is around $100 billion. Over 10 years, they say it's about $1 trillion to $1.2 trillion. So 
big financing challenges there if the Chinese are not financing. And as we've been talking about in recent episodes, the Chinese big policy banks have been pulling back on their overseas development finance. We talked to the folks at the Boston University Global Development Policy Center who did some research that showed that the China Exim Bank and the China Development Bank together, their financing plunged from $75 billion a year to $4 billion between 2016 and 2019. The same thing is happening in the African infrastructure financing space where financing plunged from $100 billion annually in 2014 to just $31 billion last year. So Cobus, considering that the AFDB estimates that Africa needs $100 billion a year, that $31 billion should be a very concerning figure to them and something that they should be worried about, especially now in this COVID era. Yeah, this is this is the kind of uh, the new emerging landscape we're seeing. So you know, so one has to also point out that that you know, in the past, all of this all of this lending um, for big infrastructure projects have also led to to a debt crisis um, or contributed to a debt crisis in Africa. Um, you know, which 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 kind of shows how difficult it is to sustainably fund African infrastructure. So you know, I, you know, one of the things I think that 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 COVID is is clarifying is that we we entering into a new era and that era is going to is going to demand new ways of financing african infrastructure you know it's clear that the continent can't not build infrastructure um you know because because its entire development trajectory depends on them depends on infrastructure so so it has to find creative new ways of of funding that infrastructure without kind of adding to the 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 current debt crisis Well, let's find out more about the trends in African infrastructure financing and development. A new report came out at the end of April by the global law firm Baker McKinsey, who worked with a number of partners on this report. New dynamics, shifting patterns in Africa's infrastructure funding. It was done by a large group of people, but Vildu Duplessis, who is the head of Baker McKenzie's Global Africa Practice in Johannesburg, was among the authors. And we are thrilled to have Vildu on the show. Very good morning to you, Vildu. Good morning, Eric. Nice to speak to everyone. It's great to have you here. You wrote in your report that the funding has dropped, as I mentioned, from $100 billion in 2014 to just $31 billion last year. You also said at the top of the report that the market is down but not out. Now, that's a big drop. Give us the landscape of the market as you see it right now in your report. Yes, thanks, Eric. That is a very big drop. And I have to say, you know, what you discussed with Kurbis previously makes perfect sense, is to say that that drop in and of itself and the massive gap that still exists uh, should really, you know, cause uh, concern. Uh, Africa remains an infrastructure poor region. So investment in infrastructure is absolutely critical to make sure that Africa retains the, 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 the gains that have been made over the past sort of 10, 12 years. But the infrastructure gap remains very large, very real. Um, the pandemic, of course, has, has widened the finance gap. That's the way we would see it. Um, it's not the only contributing cause. There's been economic headwinds, especially in your large African economies, South Africa, Nigeria, you know, among them. But the pandemic has definitely widened that finance gap. And we've seen a number of international banks withdrawing from Africa, you know, as there's increasing financial pressure on them. Um, and that, of course, means that there's a, a, a well, should we say, a rising pressure on the public purse. 
um, which means that there's quite a lot of focus on bilateral and multilateral lending. Just one other bit, you know, we will probably get to it, but uh, we mentioned a lot about, or Kurbis mentioned a lot about Chinese funders. Let's just be very clear that China still remains the top international investor into Africa. Um, we think things are changing, or it seems to us as if things will be changing as you see this battle for influence playing out. Uh, new U.S. administration shifting priorities in the U.K. post-Brexit. Um, you can see how these geopolitical shifts are going to change. But when I had a quick look over the last, let's say, 10 or 12 years of the five largest infrastructure funders into Africa, that you know, you've got two Chinese funders. They sit at almost thirty-five billion dollars. The next one, uh, number two, is you know, if, so if you combine those two Chinese funders, about thirty-five billion dollars. The next one, JBIC, uh, uh, out of Japan, sitting on sort of less than ten. So the Chinese uh, uh, funding still is quite a large portion of what we see in infrastructure. That data you pointed out there is absolutely stunning. Because there's a chart in your report that shows basically the China Exim Bank at 29 billion, and then the China Development Bank at 4.8 billion, so about 34, 35 billion dollars. And again, as you pointed out, it just dwarfs all of the others, and it shows in many ways how China is the indispensable funder of infrastructure in Africa. It's really it's a stunning chart, and I, I posted it on Twitter, and I said this here explains everything about the current state of financing in Africa for infrastructure. Well, you know, like on, on that point, um, how, how do you how do you see that changing over the next few years, considering, you know, we, we've seen all of this indication that that um, China Exim Bank and China Development Bank, is that they're both really pulling back on lending um, to the global south. Um, so do you see that, you know, the, simply a decline in Chinese lending, um, or do you see the kind of mix changing in, in, in other ways? So, Gubbas, that, that's a very interesting question. Just just my first off the top sort of thing, thought about that is if I, of course, knew the exact answer, I would not be sitting in a law firm. <laughs> you know, I would be making way more money. Uh, but, but no, on a, on a more serious note, um, you're absolutely correct. We have seen a decline in Chinese funding over the, you know, over the last year. So, so, so that, that, that mix does, you know, that, that is, it, it, it sort of counts from 2008 to last year. It is a 12-year period. I personally think the mix will change. Um, whenever we talk to clients uh, and people who want to get into the Africa infrastructure, but all of them are talking about this, you know, we call it the battle for influence. Um, new markets being developed, the administration uh, uh, changing in places like the US. You know, for a long time in the previous administration, people were, were talking about the trade tensions that exist between China and the US specifically. So, um, uh, you know, the, the, the few things that we know, one, the need is not going to go away. Uh, two, the growth rate overall in Africa will remain positive. It may take Africa a bit longer to, to, to come out of the pandemic and the effects of the pandemic. Um, but in the longer term, if you look at the macro numbers, the, the need is there, there's capital ready to be deployed. So I think the mix will change. One will have to see, you know, exactly how that happens. But the Africa, sorry, the infrastructure in Africa needs to be funded. There are people willing to fund it. Um, and there's still good money to be made in funding it. 
Well, let's dive into that aspect a little bit. Your report focuses a lot on foreign funders, development finance institutions, the Chinese, the Japanese, and so forth. How much and what's the balance, as far as you know, between domestic financing of infrastructure, say South Africa paying for its own or Nigeria paying for its own infrastructure versus what comes from overseas? Yeah, that's that's correct, Eric. Um, we've seen, of course, an increase in the, shall we call it, domestic or local funding of projects, as we've seen the 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 um, the withdrawal of your international banks. Um, the issue with that is you need a really robust and strong and healthy domestic uh, funding universe. Uh, you know, if you purely want to tap the domestic funding. You can see how a large um, uh, uh, economy like South Africa with a really well-developed financing sector can do that. And in South Africa, we do see a lot uh, of of purely domestic funded infrastructure projects. Um, If you look at a different uh, uh, economy or a different mix of, you know, uh, a jurisdiction maybe where you have not tapped the local uh, savings pools, to the same extent South Africa has done it or Egypt has done it, that domestic funding becomes difficult. There's an interesting bit that we've done that sort of looks at how large the bilateral funding is compared to multilateral funding. Now, I know that bilateral is by no means, uh, you know, just domestic funding, but you can see that the bilateral funding is is, is way higher than your uh, multilateral lending. Um, one will have to see, of course, to what extent you've got your African uh, or your regional DFIs, African Development Bank, Development Bank of South Africa, you know, African uh, Export Import Bank. They're all on our table of uh, 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 entities that have funded quite a large chunk of infrastructure, and that could perhaps sort of push it up. Now, it's maybe not purely domestic funding, but it's definitely African funding for African projects. In the report, you also you you mentioned that at the moment there's, we've seen a, a retreat um, by uh, development finance institutions um, and leaving a, a kind of a vacuum that that you um, suggested might be filled by commercial banks. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that would mean, like you know, kind of how how would commercial banks stepping up? How would it change the landscape, and how would it affect stuff like like in interest rates, for example? Okay, the, the the first thing that I think one should realize if you have a project that is commercial bank funded without any DFI input is two things will happen. The one is your commercial banks do not necessarily like the long tenors that your DFIs are, are willing to fund. Um, that does change a bit if you bring into the funding mix non-bank funders. So if you start bringing in asset managers, pension funds, that sort of thing, uh, there is a, 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 a tendency to like longer tenors. But the first issue, if you do not have the right mix between DFI funding and commercial bank funding, the first issue that you'll get is tenor. Um, that's not, it is not that the tenor cannot be dealt with for any project. Again, if I want to refer to the the South African Renewable Energy Project, you saw 30-year tenors funded by commercial banks, but off the back of a very strong South African parastatal, almost governmental guarantee. So yes, you can stretch the tenors, but you then need to start thinking as to how do you do that. The moment you've got DFI funders in there, the tenor becomes easier to handle. Commercial banks can fund the EBIT, and DFIs can fund the longer tenor. 
Um, the second thing that you that you see is if you have a complete a withdrawal from DFIs, not that we are suggesting or, or not, not that we're seeing that at all, but if you have a withdrawal from DFIs, there's a lot of financial hygiene that almost disappears. DFIs plays a very important role in making sure that your projects are vetted, your projects are almost given a, a, you know, a, 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 a once over, and commercial banks like the fact that they can co-lend with DFIs. So, long way of saying, I don't see your commercial banks taking over the, the infrastructure funding. If we look at any other parts of the world, you know, that's not what happened. DFIs have played, have actually increased the importance of their role, but you would have to watch tenors and you would have to watch uh, this financial hygiene issue more than interest rates probably. When I speak to folks at the China Exim Bank up in Beijing, the complaint that they always come back to me about is finding feasible projects in Africa projects that are going to deliver ROI. And this question of return on investment is very important because the Chinese are not in the mood anymore to simply give $6 billion to build a railway and let's see what happens, right? They actually want to have a pathway to getting that money back. And that's been a big problem. And there's certain kinds of infrastructure that can generate those returns. So toll roads, power systems, the moment you put them in, money starts coming in the door. Sewage systems, not so much. Roads, not so much. The pathway to ROI is not as clear on that. Can you talk to us about the search for feasible projects and the, that question of ROI that, that your clients and infrastructure financiers are looking for? So Eric, that's an absolute key point in any form of infrastructural funding, um, whether we're in Africa, or Southeast Asia, or elsewhere in the world. Um, Africa, I think it's particularly key because we have seen a number of projects that are just not workable. Um, that being said, it's not only uh, you know the, the the Chinese funders that would be in, you know that would be worried about that. All funders, whether it's a commercial bank, whether it's a development finance institution, whether it's private equity and non-bank investors, they all talk about that. They also talk a lot about how long does it take a project sponsor to get the project to a, to a position where the project has got a bankability or a feasibility tick next to it. Uh, that is a particular problem. I'm not sure whether your project developers always use all of the tools that are available to them. Uh, you know, we know that the World Bank and the IFC and so on, a lot of these multinational uh, development agencies do have tools and funding available to get you to that feasibility stage. But I do think um, we are beyond the, the, the time when projects were funded simply because there could be a relatively, uh, you know, crude quid pro quo this way or that way. Projects have to be uh, uh, feasible, both from an economic perspective and then importantly, of course, the sustainability issue. There's a massive focus and a massive build-up, and we just see that getting more so on longevity and sustainability. Um, deals should have, the, the way that the African uh, 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 governments would like to say it is, there should be a net positive for local African economies. So it's, it's, it's almost that trifecta, you know, it's the, it's the longevity, the sustainability, and then the bankable feasibility of a project. Um, 
that all comes down to making sure that projects, once the moment that they start being developed, your project sponsor needs to make sure that that thing will eventually deliver a, you know, a, a, a feasible project. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at the Witts University Journalism Department in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitzChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za. The report focuses a lot on on what's called ESG um, standards, you know, so so environmental, um, social, and governance standards. Um, so I was wondering, um, where do you see the most the most action in in the African landscape in setting ESG standards? Like, is, is that happening at the AU level, regional economic communities, or at the state level? So, Kubis, that of course has had a long these ESG issues has a long sort of runway to get to where we are now. Um, you know, I would have said if we were having this, this debate or this discussion four or five years ago, I would have said ESG is something you need to think about mining. Okay? Mining, the mining industry really sort of piloted it and the funders in it. But as we stand now, it's pervasive across all of your industries. Um, it is, agri is very, very sort of keen on it. Mining, obviously keen on it. The whole water bit, sewage bit, very keen on it. Um, the whole large infrastructural projects, if you think of all of the debates that are going on with dams and that sort of thing, you know, a very key focus on it. The question you ask is a difficult one to answer, and that is because we do not have a standardized set of requirements at the moment. Now, what we've seen working very well historically is, you know, it was the IFC and the World Bank that started with the equator principles. So it, was, it came from the funding side to say, we can only fund projects like this if it adheres to this, this, and this. Granted, that was very mining focused, but you need the funders to start having a voice in saying, this is what we require going forward. We see different, we see different jurisdictions doing different things on it. If you look at a country like Rwanda, you know, they are really well ahead of even larger economies like South Africa when it comes to what do I want and what do I need in order to get my sustainability and you know uh, 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 um, social economic uh, issues right. Very focused on it. Um, jurisdictions unfortunately are not, they're not, uh, 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 um, uh, they don't approach things in the same manner. I think it'll be very difficult for someone like the AU necessarily to do something on that front. So for me, it comes from the funders. The funders are starting to say, I need to have certain ticks behind a project if I were to fund it. And that is something that you see in all of the, you know, the green bonds that are being issued. Uh, it's driven funder side. So, you know, that for me is, is almost where we should start looking at this. The perception is that the Chinese are not as rigorous in demanding those sustainability ticks or checks on the box, as you pointed out. Is that true based on your experience looking at the market that the Chinese, they are a little bit more flexible on projects that may not be as clean? I was going to say it's true that it is the perception, Eric. <laughs> Whether that is empirically the case, I've got, you know, severe doubts. Um, and I'll tell you why I say that. 
If you look at, um, let's look at a country like South Africa, very rich in coal, uh, very dependent on coal-fired power stations. Um, not that they're always working as good as they or as well as they should be, but you know that's the <laughs> that's the landscape at the moment. To find a funder for a coal-based fire sta- a, a power station, even Chinese funders very, very difficult, bordering on the impossible. So I think, yes, there is a perception that that's the case. Um, I'm not convinced that that in reality is the case. Definitely our discussions with Chinese funders, uh, project developers are saying this issue about ESG, sustainability, uh, all of that, absolutely key for any funder. doesn't matter where in the world that funder is situated. In the report, you mentioned that there's a kind of a struggle for influence between, uh, uh, you know, d- different kind of external partners. And, and you also point out that, that Asian partners are by far the largest investors in African um, infrastructure. The report also quotes, um, you know, kind of heads of the, the U.S. Um, Development Finance Corporation. Um, and I was wondering, like, how you foresee the U.S.'s role changing? Do you, do you, do you think they would, they, you know, on, on the back of the DFC and OPEC, um, you know, whether there, there is scope for larger U.S. investment in, in African infrastructure? Kubis, I think the short answer to that is yes. Um, if for no other reason other than we know that the old OPEC, U.S. Exum, has had, you know, they've, they've both struggled with severe mandate constraints, and that has been changed. So, so, so for no reason other than just all of a sudden these things are open for business again, um, we are quite positive in seeing more U.S.-based capital flowing into African infrastructure. Um, the, the, the issue around struggle for influence, of course, is more a political question is to say to what extent do, does any sort of jurisdiction, the U.S., the U.K., to what extent do I politically want to achieve certain things in order to extend my sphere of influence? But, you know, the, the, um, uh, I think it's fair to say that there's definite uh, appetite from U.S. investors. If you can link that to, uh, you know, a, a, a good export program like what the U.S. Exxon Bank has uh, or, you know, co-invest with, with DFC or the old OPIC, you know, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, there has been. A, a, a constraint on U.S. capital, and you know we're very positive that that uh, will will hopefully not continue. But do you think the the U.S. is going to rival what the Chinese are doing? Because up until now, the DFC has has really targeted its investments into much smaller private sector plays, and and that I don't want to diminish that because I think what the DFC is doing is absolutely critical by trying to fill gaps in the financing space that the private sector and other DFIs won't fill, and especially in the micro investments, really, really important. But they're not necessarily going to compete again with what China Exim Bank is doing with multi-billion dollar initiatives to build railways, ports, and things like that. Or do you think that's the case? Yeah, Eric, I mean, if we look at someone like U.S. Exum and compare them to China Exum, I, I, I think it does depend to a large extent on the projects that a U.S. national or a Chinese national would want to get involved in. So um, it, 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 the point you make about the size comparison, I think, is, 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 is a fair one. But, you know, I mean, we went through a very 
long period of African infrastructure investment where the mantra was really that um, if it comes from the U.S., it has to be exceedingly expensive and, you know, just couldn't work for the project. Now, that I think is, is, is probably changing to some extent, depending on what the project is and so on. We've also seen a lot of projects being funded that are really playing to Chinese exporters' sweet spots, you know, real basic infrastructure, road building, uh, 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 that sort of thing, mining. So, so to some extent, it is dependent on the product, or sorry, the project mix that gets, that, that gets funded. In all of our discussions with, with, with as I said, both the, the, the funder side and the project sponsor side, there's a lot of um, excitement about what the new uh, administration would mean for U.S. funding and U.S. investment in infrastructure. So, you know, I think one will have to wait and see how that changes. One, one of the, the possible strands of finance that you identify as private equity, um, and I was wondering um, where you foresee some of that private equity coming from and, and how um, African projects can be made more attractive to attract more private equity. Okay, so, so, so the private equity bit that we see quite, quite you know, actively and a lot of sort of um, pent-up demand almost, dry powder, I think is the nice way to put it, there's a lot of uh, North American capital, a lot of European capital, and then the third bucket, sort of almost these sovereign wealth funds. And they, they can be, you know, across the, 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 the globe. Um, what, what excites us about it is really the industries that you see some activity in. So if you start thinking about, and, 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 and that's probably what, what the whole pandemic has also made people think about, is this issue around healthcare, making sure that you have, you know, appropriate healthcare facilities in place. I mean, I think it's becoming more and more interesting, at least for me sitting in South Africa, reading all of the debates about um, uh, uh, about vaccination apartheid, I think it was called by one commentator recently. But you can see how... Africa is way behind the curve when it comes to vaccination rates. So healthcare, the facilities for healthcare and so on. Now that is an industry that's perfectly suited to private equity and private equity very keen to invest in that. You know, similar thing about uh, uh, um, uh, digital uh, uh, commerce, e-commerce. You know, you just see now that has taken off as a result of the pandemic or you know, at the same time as the pandemic. Again, something very, very, you know, near and dear to private equity. So private equity will focus on specific industries. I think that there is quite a number of these industries in Africa that you can see happening. If we just think of the, you know, the whole Kenyan drive to make sure that they become world leaders in technology and that sort of thing. Uh, That's perfect for private equity to invest in. Private equity, however, would need a very clear view on, 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 on value. So that comes back to the same bit we discussed earlier in relation to project preparation, making sure that it is feasible. And then, of course, private equity would always look for an exit. Now, for an exit, you know, one would have to sort of think a bit about to what extent your African capital markets may have to be developed. Uh, that's a project that has been on the go uh, for a long time. It it, it, it ties into the point I made earlier about saying, how do you unlock 
local African savings pools and give people access to that money that's sitting in market. If you can link that to a private equity uh, uh, investor, makes for a brilliant investment, I would imagine, in certain uh, specific industries that, that work, the one that we sort of, uh, you know, spoke about. But for the exit, you would need to develop some of your African capital markets so that, you know, the private equity investor can look at an IPO and, you know, create even further wealth building that way. Uh, or a, a, you know, a real resurgence of African M&A. Now, that's a topic for another discussion, but, you know, there, there's also some, some, some silver linings that we've seen on that front. I'd like to start wrapping up our conversation with a look forward. We've talked about some of the difficulties where we are today, but looking forward, Africa's infrastructure needs are quite diverse. Uh, obviously, transportation, logistics, power, water, uh, sanitation, health, all of those need, and that infrastructure deficit of $100 billion covers a lot of sectors. But not all sectors are equal in the hierarchy of importance. Certainly, power must rank at the top. Uh, health also is at the top digital being very important as well. How would you rank the top three most important verticals in the in, in the infrastructure space that need that financing? Eric, I think you got it spot on. You know, without power, it's very, very difficult to do anything else. So power has to be and has to remain the, the first sort of issue in that. Uh, then I do think what the pandemic has done for Africa specifically is really shone a light on the the, 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 the roadblocks or the potential issues in its healthcare system. It needs to make sure that it has its healthcare system built up and uh, 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 bettered. So healthcare for me is, is, is sort of right up there. Um, linked to healthcare, of course, is one of those issues that, or an industry that we spoke a bit about earlier, very difficult to see how you do it economically, and that's the issue around clean water. So clean water, very key for, for your healthcare. But, um, and this issue around, uh, you know, the, the digital economy. Uh, Africa has already shown in, in, you know, over the past, however, you know, 20 years or so, how it embraced cell phone technology. So, so that, that, that technological leap would not be strange for Africans to do. And I think that is also something that can really transform African economies. Once you have a, a vibrant in-country economy, all of your real, you know, your road bits becomes easier to fund and easier to do. So just a very broad question. One of the concerns around African investment we, we hear most frequently is corruption. And, and we've, we've, we've frequently we've seen, for example, in the discussion at the moment about the special drawing rights from, from the, the International Monetary Fund, some people you know, arguing that, oh, this is just going to increase government corruption in, in Africa. So I was wondering, from your perspective, how like to which extent is this just Africa having an undeserved bad reputation, and to which extent you know do you see corruption as a kind of a fundamental issue, and how what kind of progress is the, is the continent making in tackling corruption? Yeah, Kovis, look, I must say it's 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 uh, <laughs> it's been a long time since we spoke about African in, in investment, you know, on a, a forum like this and. The ugly C word is literally the last question to come up. It's usually question number one is talk to us about the ugly C word. <laughs> I think corruption and anti-corruption measures is definitely something that is relevant no matter where you fund projects. You know, we have exactly the same questions that we would run through with investors. 
you know, it doesn't matter where the project is. Um, what one has seen in Africa, though, is that you have seen, I think it's fair to say that we've seen an increased focus in governmental activity trying to make sure that there is, that there is a, a rooting out of corruption. Different jurisdictions have had different levels of success with it. Um, and, 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 and the thing that I think is really sort of changing the tide there is the more extraterritorial legislation that are, uh, uh, that are introduced worldwide, if you think of the you know, FATCA in the US or the UK Bribery Act or something like that, if the sponsor or the investor is very clear on saying, I'm just not going to participate in that because it's wrong, you know, these will be the consequences. That is really when that discussion, if it ever occurs, just comes to a grinding halt. So, so you know, I think the issue around corruption, yes, one would need to see exactly what happens to the corruption index or the perceived corruption index and so on. It's not only an African problem. We've seen lots of African governments taking real steps to do it. Some of them more successful than, 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 than others. It's, of course, a hotly debated topic in South Africa at, at the moment where we've got, you know, a, 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 a government investigations into it and so on. But, you know, the more light they shine on it, the more sort of it gets sanitized through sunlight. The report is New Dynamics, Shifting Patterns in Africa's Infrastructure Funding. It came out at the end of April. It's absolutely essential reading if you want to understand the current state of Africa's infrastructure market. And it has a lot of information about what the Chinese are doing. And as I mentioned at the top, the indispensable role that the Chinese play there, given the disproportionate amounts of money they have lent over the years to build African infrastructure. It was written by Vildu Duplessis and his colleagues at Baker McKenzie. Vildu is the head of the global Africa practice there. Vildu, thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights on this important topic. We really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Eric. Nice to speak to you in Corbus. Kobus, Vildu is more optimistic than I thought he was going to be. And he's really looking at all of these different types of funding from private equity to the DFIs. He still seems to think that the Chinese are going to be engaged in the market a lot more than I do. I am on the more pessimistic side. I think the Chinese are getting out of the development finance game in Africa. There's not any indication that we've seen that they're lending money at all, really. In all of the deals that I've been watching over the past six months seven months. Not one is coming through the China Exim Bank. Everything now is about Chinese construction companies. And that's the focus for them, I think, right now in Africa. Again, 31% of all the major projects last year in Africa were built and contracted by Chinese firms. But they're not necessarily lending the money for those firms. So I'm not as optimistic, maybe, as I think Vildu is on that front. But I do like the idea that Self-financing, domestic financing, private equity, venture capital, all these different sources of money going for different projects, all up, up and down the spectrum of Africa's vast infrastructure needs. That is very exciting. Just closing that gap from $31 billion back up to $100 billion, I think in this current environment, is going to be very difficult. Yeah, it's, it'll definitely be a, a challenge. Um, you know, and of course, the the slow rollout of vaccinations um, and the the continuous kind of problems in, in Africa to to kind of to catch up with, with the rest of the world in, in, in vaccination rates will also slow stuff down. Um, you know, because, because countries will be forced to, to have, you know, kind of COVID mitigation measures 
privileges in place much longer than other places. But uh, you know, it is interesting that that I think when when one speaks with African officials and African stakeholders, they're frequently a lot more optimistic. I think about about the future um, about of, of African development than you, you know than than some external you know partners. Um, and I think uh, you know could have, uh, the, the 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 fact is I think that the demand for infrastructure remains. Um, you know, and it you know the, the the some of the financing for that infrastructure might be tricky, um, and some of some of the players are shifting clearly, but at the same time, the demand means that there is ways of making money there. One just needs to find the exact way and the exact mechanism. Um, but you know, the 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 need for the infrastructure and therefore the, the you know in some kind of way the willingness to to pay for it, I think, remains. I'm glad you brought up that corruption question because it's a very important aspect of the debate over infrastructure, simply because when the Chinese build infrastructure, they're often accused of building shoddy infrastructure. And the Chinese oftentimes will then come back and say, it's not our fault. It's because corruption took away a lot of the budget, and therefore we weren't able to make as high a quality project as we would have if we had the full budget. So I think that that issue of governance is going to be super important. And that goes to the feasibility question. This is what the China Exim Bank people were telling me, is that they're getting project proposals that just have no pathway to return on investment, no pathway to make money. They might be suitable for political reasons domestically. They might be pet projects, passion projects, but they're not feasible in terms of generating revenue. That's what the Exim Bank is looking for now. That, again, makes it very difficult because funding sewage projects, for example, which isn't necessarily a toll-based project, is going to be much more difficult to convince there's a pathway to profitability on. I think you're going to get a lot more investment in digital because there's going to attract private equity money. You're going to attract the capital markets, pension funds, bondholders. Lots of people like tech. It's a great space to be in, lots of upside to it. Even the likes of Google, Facebook, they're going to come in with big money investments and whatnot but it's in the less glamorous aspects of infrastructure. As you see in South Africa, power is really tough to do. And I don't know where that money's going to come from. And it requires a huge amount of money. Yeah, uh, you know, kind of, uh, it it seems to me um, that there's going to have to be creative thinking on both sides because I, I can I can imagine a, a government kind of you know kind of calculating that if we can get people into investors into some of the sexy uh, kind of aspects like tech for example or, or in some cases some cases kind of sustainable power generation then you know if, if you can get investors into those fields then you might be able to like they, they might be able to boost boost those sectors of the economy to the extent that you might then that it might then open up other spaces to, to do this kind of less glamorous and less immediately profitable kind of expansion like like water treatment facilities, for example. Um, at, at the same time, I think African con- countries are going to have to become a lot more kind of hardcore creative in terms of how, in, in terms of their kind of problem solving in relation to electricity, for example. So so kind of thinking beyond conventional grids, for example, or, you know, kind of, or, or finding, finding kind of p- smaller kind of investors to do piecemeal solutions that can then hook into grids in, in more in more creative ways for all fi- you know kind of finding ways that like the, the German model of, of of having richer citizens you know have like fund their own solar and then feed that back into the grid all of those kind of solutions so in that sense then a lot of the, the international partners will then become logistics and facilitatory you know kind of partners who will help for example to 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 bridge the technology gap in in order to facilitate some of some of these solutions you know so it's not 
not necessarily a situation where your only option is a big, a big Exim Bank loan in order to build an entire conventional grid around around a power plant. You know, like I, th- I think both sides will have to become a lot more creative and a lot more willing to work on smaller, smaller kind of subsections of, of the bigger issue. Both Vildu and the report address the issue of geopolitics and the great power competitions. That certainly involves the Europeans, the Americans, and the Chinese. Let's take a look at two summits, one that happened, one that's going to happen. We just had this week the summit on the financing of African economies, which was held on Tuesday in Paris, hosted by French President Emmanuel Macron. And if that summit taught us anything about where the Europeans are right now, or at least even the Americans, because Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was also there at the summit, um, I wouldn't expect too much. Absolutely nothing came out of this summit. What a giant, colossal waste of African and European and even American taxpayer money. The Chinese had the, the wits about themselves to not fly in their vice premier who gave the, the, the address. He did that by video conference from Beijing. But everybody else, to me, was a complete waste of money because we got a nothing burger of a communique that came out of this, which was just empty, vague promises. And, and again, I was, we, you and I were talking before the show that if, if I was Cyril Ramaphosa and I flew 15 hours from O.R. Tambo Airport in Johannesburg all the way up to Paris and nothing came out of it, no commitment on financing, no commitment on debt relief, no organizing of the private sector to do investment, just promises that we're going to try and get the new issuance of special drawing rights from the IMF. We're going to try, everybody, to allocate some of those to Africa a little bit more than what you're already getting. That was basically the message that came out of that communique. So I don't think there's a lot of hope coming out of what we saw in Paris that European, U.S., DFIs, and the multilaterals and those governments are that motivated to do something substantive for Africa. Yeah, I mean, this this tended to, you know... I'm sure you know we will get pushback on this, but this tended, to, in, 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 to my mind, to, to conf- confirm some of the stereotypes about about Europe and and U.S. engagement in Africa. Like two two big ones. One one being that that they really want to be in the space of being a thought leader like they're super obsessed with being like you know kind of like like leading the discussion leading you know like, like being some kind of like moral compass but not really super willing to pay for anything you know <laughs> so you know um and then uh, the the other thing is you know the, it was it was very interesting that the the one big deal that did come through was was debt relief and a new loan to Sudan um and you know which which seems to to, to favor um an, another stereotype of what western engagement in Africa is that they super interested in want to, in like like rushing immediately to 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 support anything that looks like democratization um but not nearly as interested in supporting ongoing dem- democratic life you know kind of the the the, the countries the democratic countries who, who are democratic and struggling to to, to kind of pull the, all of the developmental pressures together to to not you know to, to in order to to kind of manage their kind of democratic institutions and so on they frequently get a lot less love than someone who's just turned democratic like two weeks ago. So on that Sudan point that, Kobus, that you just mentioned, France agreed to forgive $5 billion of debt and then also to pay $1.5 billion of Sudan's arrears at the IMF. And again, I go back to my point, like if I am anybody else, Buhari was there, Kenyatta was there, Ramaphosa was there, all the big guys were there. They walked away with nothing. <laughs> nothing. Yeah, they're like, what are we, job lover? Well, I you mean, know, like, yeah. and again, I just think there were certain expectations that something was going to come out of this other than just vague promises. 
that we're going to ask for more money from the IMF and that we support the G20's DSSI and that we are promoting a low carbon economic recovery. I mean, like, what the? I mean, just mind boggling to me. Well, the thing is, it's also... You know, you know, it's it's taking it's taking all of this is happening on the back of 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 just an ongoing migration crisis. You know, kind of an and you know, like we, we've seen scandals over the last few weeks of I think Greek authorities kind of returning refugees back into the sea, for example. Um, you know, just just this ongoing dragging kind of crisis of just like a few thousand people kind of arriving every day, and you know, a, a seeming kind of kind of like you know freeze or like kind of paralysis in Europe kind of about how to deal with that issue which you know I have sympathy for it's a, it's a, it's a difficult issue to deal with but at the same time you know kind of like this is the moment to have a more kind of creative and more you know kind of like everything on the table kind of discussion with African governments about how to deal with this bigger issue you know rather than just kind of platitudes about green development and post-COVID build back better you know and then all of this kind of refugee nightmares happening at the same time in the same country. Well, let's talk about the Chinese summit that's coming up this year. We got word this week from the Panda Paw Dragon Claw blog, which if you're not reading that blog, you absolutely must. It is a fantastic blog written by uh, a great team of journalists and writers in Beijing who write about the Belt and Road in general. They overheard at a conference earlier this week that the summit FOCAC, Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, is going to be an online-offline hybrid that will take place sometime later this year in Dakar, Senegal. My guess is that Chinese President Xi Jinping will not leave his hermetically sealed bubble in China in order to go to Senegal. That's just too risky, but we will probably see Yang Jiechi and Wang Yi, who are the two leading foreign policy officials in China. They will probably be in Dakar Let's talk about what will be on that agenda. It's hard to tell if the Chinese are going to keep up the pace of their big, giant checks that they bring out every year or every three years when they do this, this summit. So the last time was $60 billion in financing, and the time before that was also $60 billion. Different ways of adding up that money. It's not just grants or loans. It's a lot of different kinds of money that add up to that. The indications that we're getting, Cobus, is that there's going to be a lot less in terms of infrastructure financing, in terms of that those big power and road projects, and more focused on the digital Silk Road and the health Silk Road. We'll probably see a lot in the vaccine space, that there may be a lot of money that is going to be made available to borrow for vaccines. Interesting thing that happened also this week, Trinidad and Tobago, apparently in the Caribbean, that's the small Caribbean island, they had a $200 million, $220 million loan, I think it was, and they used $25 million from that loan to purchase vaccines from China. That may be what we see coming out of FOCAC as well. What are you thinking? What are you hearing about FOCAC and contrasting that with what we saw in Paris this week? Yeah, it's a very good question, very difficult question to answer um, because because you know the FOCAC always is a ton of rumors and but but anything official is kept kept very close to the chests of people in power. Um, my my guess, I, I have a similar guess to you. Like like I, I I tend to think that they probably will steer away from having a a, a single big number that they're announcing. 
they may well, you know, kind of switch that with several smaller numbers, you know, kind of to, to, to kind of to, to kind of confuse the the narrative of like, oh, they're withdrawing finance, um, you know. But in, in not having a big central number, they would they would wouldn't be alone. The Japanese didn't put out a big central number the last time before for for TCAD, the last TCAD summit. Um, so you know, but but I, I foresee, like you said, I foresee, you know, probably where we will see some numbers will probably be around investment in digital and and health um and great you know like <laughs> digital and health both will be super useful and super helpful for for, for african development so you know so I, what what um deborah bratigam has, has predicted in the past and i think that makes a lot of sense as well is that there'll probably be a lot more focus on on a lot more talking up of innovative kind of financing not run through big chinese state banks and then a, a focus on you know on increasing private equity investment and you know and, and kind of corporate interest in in Africa. So they may, we may see some more aggressive kind of matchmaking between Chinese or kind of at least kind of like bringing bringing African leaders and and Chinese corporations into even more contact. You know, um, so so in that sense that it might it might kind of dilute it a little bit from the the very state state focus that FOCAC frequently has into a more a more kind of hybrid one where where we bring, where they bring more corporate interests in. Um, you know, that might be another option. I, I think it's going to be a kind of a new world focus it's going to be it's going to set the tone i think for the rest of the of of the decade rather than necessarily replicating what focus has been in the 2010s Ooh, so interesting and this of course will all be set amid the worsening relations between china and the united states subscribers to our email newsletter this week have been getting daily updates on all the different things that are coming out of washington and beijing and they are really going at each other now. The The mood is souring faster than I even expected. Uh, just to, today, as we were putting together the show and the newsletter, uh, we're seeing disputes and discussions, I mean, just nasty disputes on all levels. Ben Sass, the Nebraska senator, he wrote this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, and he, he you know, referenced Chinese vaccines as garbage vaccines. That then prompted Global Times to come back with a biting response. Then Biden talking about how United States' new effort to start shipping vaccines overseas will contrast with the Chinese. Then Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian coming back immediately and denouncing Biden for criticizing the Chinese. Then we saw Linda Thomas-Greenfield also this week talking about how she's going to differentiate uh, American foreign policy in Africa uh, from the Chinese foreign policy that's there and using, of course, the same rhetoric of coerciveness and dependency and whatnot. So just the tone is really getting sour. And it's something that we're going to keep looking at. We're going to bring some folks back on the show again to talk about U.S.-China-Africa relations simply because, as we heard from Vildu, it really just filters into every aspect of the relationship. So we'll, we'll, we'll focus on that and we'll have a whole dedicated show. Uh, but if you'd like to subscribe and get the updates every day. We want to thank all of our new subscribers, especially our podcast listeners. I really appreciate it. It's just, it really makes us feel great that you guys are supporting what we're doing here and like what we do. If you'd like to subscribe to the newsletter to get it every single day, it drops at 6 a.m. Washington time. We have a special promotion just for our podcast listeners. Uh, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe 
Enter the promo code podcast and we'll give you 20% off. You can try it for a month for free just to see if you like it because we really want to make it accessible. It's only $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everybody else. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. And big, big shout out to all of our podcast listeners who have signed up over the past few weeks. Uh, we're just so grateful for that. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Copus and I will be back again next week with another edition. Until then, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter, Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Music